Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I'm Tracy Hotchner, and I wrote the Dog Bible, everything your dog wants you to know, as well as the Cat Bible, everything your cat expects you to know, because I care about people who care about cats and dogs. That's what this show is all about, combing the world to find authors and experts to talk about cats, dogs, and many other creatures who share our world. You're listening to WLIW-FM Southampton, over the air at 88.3, serving eastern Long Island and southern Connecticut, 96.9 in western Suffolk, and streaming at WLIW.org forward slash radio and on your favorite streaming platforms. This is listener-supported WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station, which is where I originated this show and have done so every week for 14 years. At RadioPetLady.com, there's a podcast library with all 750-plus episodes, along with my other Pet Talk podcast shows. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media, Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. This show is made possible with the support of Dr. Elsie's Precious Cat, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian in Colorado, where they have created a variety of litters and their clean protein canned and dry cat foods based on the protein found in cats' natural prey. Today's guests are a far-ranging group. Patrick A.E. will be here with his new series, Evolve, that's about biomimicry all over the world. Stacey LeBaron will be here to talk about the United Spay Alliance online conference. And Dr. Catherine Raven will be back. I wanted to talk to her about the sloppiness of language and using that word psychopath about cats. I have such a treat for everybody. Sometimes we talk dogs. Sometimes we talk cats. Sometimes we get to talk about the entire universe of creatures, of every possible slithering, creeping, crawling, leaping so forth kind. And boy, have I got the man to discuss it. Patrick I.E. lives in London, but he travels the entire globe with a mind that is like a, a, a childlike computer is like how I like to think of it. His six part series called Evolve on Curiosity Stream, which was a way to watch things I didn't know about, is so beautiful and fascinating and makes you realize that we just don't use our minds and, and eyes enough. Patrick, congratulations on this fantastic series. And as a biologist and wildlife film filmmaker, obviously a lifetime of doing just that, looking at the world and wondering at what you see. Yeah, thank you so much for that wonderful intro. It's a pleasure to be chatting to you um, today, all the way from London. It's a bit grey and cold over here. but Don't um, you worry. It's yeah. just as grey and cold here. But the places <laughs> you've been, oh, my Lord. I mean, to watch you walk in a desert, and it's mm. so boiling and you don't wear a hat. I don't even know if you have a sunblock on. You're like, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to walk in this desert in the middle of nowhere. But you are with somebody else, so it's not like you're totally alone. Yeah, I'm out there with the crew. So we, we got a couple of shots and I was like, guys, I gotta get a hat on. Like you said, I had the I had like factor fifty on. You gotta protect your skin when you're out in the desert. But I, I gotta tell you something, Tracy. For me personally, deserts are one of my favorite ecosystems and landscapes to to explore and to visit. They are just so beautiful. There's something kind of I know, like magical and you know, you kind of mentioned um like having this childlike curiosity and childlike joy. And for me, so it's a place like the desert really speaks to, you know, the, uh, our child, our childlike imagination, because that, that, that think back to when you were a kid and you heard about the Sahara desert, yes. like your mind just can't wrap itself around the concept of having such a huge space filled with sand. And then what does it look like? I always thought that deserts were completely flat. But um, one of the deserts that we went to, um, the Namib Desert, has these incredible dunes. It's got these. It's famous for its sand dunes, and you know, that's one of my favourite parts of them because as the wind flows, these these huge dunes get carved into different shapes, and then the different particles of of uh, and grains of sand start to separate into their different colours, and it's just so beautiful to be in the desert, either at sunrise or sunset. I would. If anybody gets a chance to do it, please, like, take it. You're well, I, ha I have to say that your series does give an inspiration to, to go places and to look at them differently. And speaking of childlike wonder and deserts, I did sort of think of The Little Prince when I saw that particular episode. 
of Evolve, you know, and because also, you know, the way that in that book, San Exupery, you know, you look at how a snake swallows something and it looks like a bowler hat. And I mm -hmm. guess that's sort of what you do. What you do is to look at nature, very many aspects of it, and then try to relate to how we humans could learn how to fix things or do things better in our world. And that's the part that's kind of your wild brain because mm. you think way beyond with what you're seeing. So there you are in the desert and it is beautifully photographed and mm. it looks amazing. And then we see this snake. I'm going to say sidewinder, maybe the wrong mm -hmm. word to use, yeah. but you show yeah. how he moves to side to, on the side and you're with a conservationist of some other interesting mm -hmm. kind. And the two of you look at it, but then you, you go into laboratories or as you would say, laboratories. And you <laughs> you look at the way we could move things different. Talk about how when you see the way animals, insects, reptiles manage yeah. in their environment, do you immediately think, ah, I know this will solve world hunger or, you know, or the world need for water? Do you immediately see it or do you go back and ponder? I mean, Tracy, that's that's a that's a big question, a big couple of questions there, a lot a lot to unpack. I'll, yes, I'll indeed. do my best. Thank you. <laughs> but I I think like I suppose the questions that you're asking are is because it, it's it's so fascinating, right? And, yes. it, and it's and it's and it's capturing your imagination as well. And I think that is the joy of this show. Um, it is going to capture the imagination of everybody, regardless of whether you're uh, young or old, mm -hmm. like adult whatever like it, this is this is for everybody and i think you know when when you're when you're going to some of these locations that the whole the, the, the whole thesis of the show it, it is about biomimicry it's this right. principle or scientific study of how can we look to mother nature to find solutions to some of our greatest problems um that humankind is facing so the reason why we want to look at, at Mother Nature is because life's been on this planet for about 3.8 billion years. Um, so that's a lot of zeros. Yes, yes. <laughs> life's been around for a while. And and humankind, we've only been here for a sliver mm -hmm. of that amount of time. Mm -hmm. And so this, this natural process that's occurring, evolution, these small mutations that happen in, in the DNA of, of different animals and different species, causes a little bit of variation. And sometimes, though, and largely, those animals will will get an advantage. That's because the animals that mutate and don't have an advantage die off. Mm -hmm. So we've got this great kind of research and development lab that is basically right in front of us in, in this beautiful display of all these millions of different species that we inhabit the earth with. So when we do look at animals like the snake, it was a Peringis adder, this sidewinder, and we look at how uh, this snake, how she was able to just climb up this dune, which uh, I had, it was super difficult. And you can see that I try and run up it. and You, and you couldn't even barely walk up it. I, I don't even know that you want, I wouldn't have tried. It's like boiling hot out there. I'm just going to wind up with too much sand in my boots and then I'll be stuck here forever. You were just so plucky. I, I mean, I did end up with like, yeah, an entire boots worth of sand. Um, but the snake can do that perfectly yes. and it has all these different adaptations from not only the way that it moves it's like this wave going sideways and then also upwards so mm -hmm. it's, it, it, it's able to spread its weight um over the just the right amount of surface area of the sand so it doesn't move the sand as much so it can have more purchase more grip but then if you look carefully at the underside of the snake it's got these tiny holes these pits which help to kind of grip the sand whereas other snakes which don't have this side winding ability don't have necessarily have as many of these holes and rather have kind of spikes which um or, or backwards protrusions which help them to kind of grip the ground it, it's slightly different um kind of biological mechanisms to help her overcome the challenge of getting up the up the dune, um, and then to kind of go to your point about where we take that, we went to this um, to, to this lab called the Birth Lab, and they create all these fascinating um, new bits of technology, and one of which was this this robot snake, and yes. it, it it was it was kind of mind blowing. You, you, it's still you know, and it's kind of lab phase. So it's, it's not fully autonomous. And it, it's in a kind of uh, in this pit, which we which the uh, scientists filled with sand. Um, and so they're kind of testing the movement, trying to get it all right. And we, we got to play with it. it was kind of like playing a computer game. 
for any for any gamers out there, you like you would have loved it. I was holding oh, like yeah. a, a, a game controller, and but but using that controller, I could then determine how much it would, um, how big the wave, uh, so to speak, that the the snake's body would make going upwards and also sideways. And if you went too much, then the robot just didn't work because it just kept stayed in one spot and just kept on wriggling up and down. If you go the other way, again, it stays in one spot because it just kind of shuffles in the sand. But once you hit that sweet spot, which mimics what the sidewinder was doing in Namibia, boom, then you have it. This this robot snake literally moves up this this artificial sand dune. It was, it was, it was fascinating. And fascinating to watch and to watch your process of unwinding the sidewinder <laughs> and understanding all of the parts that made it so successful. Yeah. And if any of we adults can maintain some of our childlike sense of wonder and open-mindedness, but definitely people below our ancient age, can watch this series in so many ways in which many of the ills and problems and, and challenges of the human society are addressed by you looking at mm. all sorts of animals, but also insects and, and things in the sea. It, it helps us to think that there are solutions, but we need to look in the right place. And then yeah. what's the application? So you mm -hmm. look at this, how to move across moving sand. And unfortunately, the first thought is, oh, yes, during war, you could have war machines move more efficiently. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to be thinking that. Never mind. But then you think, <laughs> well, what if there is that kind of a landscape after a disaster? And you yes. had to get disaster rescue um, you know, uh, equipment in there, which wheels would not let them be able to get in all kinds of applications or get uh, or reach a place that in that place is something you want to reach for humankind. We hope yeah, for the yeah. good. And now you could reach there more mm -hmm. effectively. One of the, the, one of the series, they, each one has a wonderful name, explore, survive, mm -hmm. cure, protect, move, and restore. The last one, you came to America. It was very fun to watch you driving around in America on the wrong side of the road for you. But you went to a number of places, and one of them was Philadelphia. And the issue of birds crashing into skyscrapers made of glass, that was a really interesting one because not only was your intention and the intention of the people you were working with to find a way to, to – to clad large buildings differently so they don't become suicide missions for birds, but more things to learn about how they perceive – what their radar is, if you will. Was that one – how did you come up with the idea for that one? Are, were you the, the, the generator of these ideas? Did you look at problems that happened in the natural or human world and say, let's, let's go address that? Or what brought you to the thousands of birds that had died in Philadelphia? Yeah, I mean, great question. Like for me, my process is always um, uh, collaborative. So I have a couple of ideas and a couple of stories that I've come across, whether it's um, the humpback whale fins helping us to uh, generate more power from wind turbines yes, or whether it's yes. amib beetles um which are able to collect water on their, their carapace and on their scales, sorry, on, on their wing scales um, out of thin air, which is helping us to figure out how we can also – get water out of thin air, which is going to be a huge problem that the, the, the UN suggests um, have projected that by 2050, I think it is, two thirds of the world's population is going to be living with water scarcity. So it, it, it's something which, you know, when we're looking towards the natural world, some of these innovations um, and new technologies like you're saying, are coming from us just taking a closer look, just slowing down, just right. looking and appreciating how these species have um, have adapted. Um, but then to speak to what, – what, what, oh, sorry, I completely forgot where you were actually – Well, just saying, how did, why did you pick Philadelphia and the thousands oh, of birds the bird strikes. who had Look wiped out I'm, on I'm the – I'm just, I'm just yes. talking about all the different stories that we covered. Um, and one of the stories that I had already heard about was um, about the orb weaver spider uh, and how it creates these huge – uh, these huge uh, webs, which in some cases can span across um, uh, rivers. So scientists always wondered, how are these webs, uh, how, do they, how do they stay intact? Because surely there should be at least one instance of a bird flying right. through webs. But it turns out that birds don't tend to fly through spider webs. And so that's what got scientists thinking, okay, well, 
the birds must be seeing something that we aren't. And it turns out that as spiders weave their webs, they the, the proteins actually have a, a, a reflect UV light. So the UV light that's coming from the sun poof, bounces off. And it's like, it's almost like, I suppose for the birds, it's like they're in a um, at a rave <laughs> or like a black, black light party, you know, <laughs> like glow in the dark <laughs> kind of thing, you know. So, 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 minus the music, so, uh, <laughs> or the drugs. Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, you've got these um, these birds which are able to 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 visually detect these 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 spider webs, and so that's what then started the process of scientists trying to figure out, okay, how can we utilize something like this to help protect against bird strikes? Because birds fly into buildings quite often, more often than, than, we, than we would imagine. It's certainly more often than I thought. And it was once I got out there, I think it was the, the chat I was with was a guy called, uh, um, a man called Stephen. Yes, um, yeah. Absolutely lovely guy. He's super passionate. Um, and he was in Philadelphia when they had this huge event. It was almost like a... Yeah, just like something super eerie. Imagine waking up and there are just thousands of birds like dead on the street. It's like, is this is this a sign of the apocalypse right, coming? Right. You know? What's going on? Um, so I really like that story because and I'd heard about it before because there's an element of, you know, like I said, like a bit of a murder Spooky. mystery kind yeah. of vibe going yeah. on. Like, yeah. what, what is happening? And, and it turns out that whether it's because of a... Uh, migrations, um, a, a huge migration of birds, or, or something to do with, um, with meteorological, to do with the weather, they just happen to have a, a large influx flux of birds flying through the city at that time. Hence, um, why they had so many bird strikes. Um, so yeah, the, 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 the companies are now trying to develop this glass, which has these uh, patterns, these UV yes. patterns yeah. um, embedded into the glass. So depending on what the pattern is or what shape you, you, you put into the glass, different manufacturers request different shapes, uh, different shapes and different patterns. Uh, it, it, it can sometimes be visible to humans, but largely we, we don't tend to see that. But for the birds, like, you know, it's that glowing black light kind of right. just shining saying, stay away, or at least warning them that something is there. That's the problem with the bird strikes. The birds don't realize that what they're flying into is a solid, piece of glass of they just it, it, they can see through it um and you know they're flying at 20 30 miles an hour boom and yeah out and that's it's and over lights out lights well, out patrick we're, we're running low on time but i just want to say that there, there aren't enough interesting things in the world to to keep you busy or there are too many i should say you don't have enough time no matter how many more decades you've got to to Look at every little thing in the world, but everything you do look at, you illuminate with enthusiasm and intelligence and curiosity. And I find it really inspirational. I, I do want to look at the world differently, having seen your series evolve. And I, I want to spend time on Curiosity Stream, which is a way for people to stream this beautiful program. I hope you keep up doing all your great work, even with COVID travel restrictions, because you are what we need. Some hope for the future and joy in what we have now. Thank you for being here and all the wonderful things you're doing for the planet. Amen. And thank you very much, Tracy, for having me. Thank you. This show is supported by Earth Animal, privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, creating holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on sustainability. This show is also sponsored by the two women who privately own Evermore Pet Food, where they cook dog food from human edible ingredients shipped in frozen pouches directly to people's doors. I've got Stacy LeBaron back. She's the best. She's the community cats lady. And boy, she has that all wrapped up. She knows every single person in the whole United States, probably Canada and beyond, that does good deeds for cats that live outside of the homes of people. And she is one of the spearheaders of the United Spay Alliance that's coming up, as well as the feline fixed by five, which is a really important concept that we want to make into a broader knowledge base. Stacy, United Spay Alliance has been around for a long time, a short time. Yeah, so the United Spay Alliance was founded uh, about 15 years ago, and it's gone through a variety of different um, iterations. Uh, when COVID hit, unfortunately, like what happened to some other nonprofits, it sort of went a little bit dormant. Um, and then about a year or so ago, we 
brought it back to life Great. again. And Great. Um, we really felt like with all the pressures with in the veterinary field, and you've interviewed quite a few veterinarians where this whole pandemic has just taken a toll on our veterinarians, our technicians, our ability to mm-hmm. get help for our uh, cats and dogs, uh, access to affordable spay neuter. So we've brought all that information forward and we have all new information for every state uh, in the United States. We have a whole listing of clinics that will offer affordable spay neuter services. Yeah, at the website at the United Spay Alliance dot uh, org, we had a crew of volunteers work on doing all that research, and it's been phenomenal. Um, as a highlight of that, we have our United Spay Alliance conference, uh, which is February twenty fifth through twenty seventh, and it's done in partnership with the Community Cats Podcast. So it's a it's a real nice partnership between the two organizations and. We are just going to be spending a whole weekend and talking all about spay neuter and how we can really ensure that everybody has access to spay neuter for their pets. So this conference is something people can pay to participate in, right? Everybody, anybody, whether it's a professional in the sheltering community or in the veterinary community or just all the do-gooders trying to save one colony of cats in their backyard. That's correct. This is a – it's a – conference that is oriented towards anybody. So an organization, a rescue group, a spay neuter clinic, an individual who's just doing you know, trap neuter return uh, of you know cats or they've rescued a litter of kittens and they've brought them in. It's really covers you know something for everybody. We have a slew of different uh, panels uh, and just some great people there talking about the work that they're doing. I mean, many of us, you and I, we've created organizations, but we were individuals first and it was an idea. Correct. So there Correct. are many people who they just need a couple of little tidbits, a little taste, and then they know that they can take it and run with it and create an organization in their community. Um, And that's really our ultimate goal is just how to bring that passion for cats and dogs, in the case of the United Spay Alliance, passion for cats and dogs and turn it into action. And that is really the real main goal that we have there with that conference. So it's a corny, overused word. Well, it's corny because it's overused, empowerment. But it seems to me that that's sort of what the United Spay Alliance can do. It gives people a sense that they're not alone, that other people are on their own doing this good work, and it's doable. And it's an alliance of all these people that kind of share the strength, the belief, the commitment, because it can get really lonely. It really, really can. And this is a way for us all to get together and be able to provide support for one another. We can understand that we may all be feeling some of the same challenges. We also can learn from one another about how we've gone uh, through those challenges. We we just heard about a clinic uh, in Connecticut that lost their lead veterinarian. And instead of being, they couldn't hire another full-time person. They just didn't get the resumes. So they've patchworked it in. One veterinarian retired and they only nice. want to work one day a week. Nice. Another veterinarian is out of school and is learning from the retired veterinarian. So they're putting a creative solution together. So problem solving, and there's a lot of problem solving going out there on right now out in the field. And um, so we hope at United Spay Alliance, we will really learn, you know, what are those key issues and how can we help one another? We also have a bit of a global theme to the conference. And so we have a few groups. We have Mexico, Guatemala, Panama represented, uh, Greece uh, represented in some folks from uh, Japan um, and Italy are going to do some videos and share those videos with us just to get an understanding of what's happening outside of the United States, too. That is kind of gives you a chill, because if you think of Greece, it's a renowned place where there's many community cats and Greece is many places. It's many islands. But in the Cat Film Festival, I've had any number of films that focus on an island you might say overrun with cats because they weren't spay neutered and and a couple from I don't know pick your you know a couple from Bulgaria or from England who go there and buy a house and turn it into a community cat TNR kind of enclave and then other people come there and want to volunteer. I think it's great that you have these other countries involved because community cats are more. Pro- prevalent and visible in a place like Greece than maybe in urban settings or suburban settings in America. You see them everywhere and we really need to spay neuter them because otherwise it's a misery of too many of them 
and they get sick and they die, get run over, get into fights with each other, all the things that can happen with community cats, whereas spayed and neutered and you hope then vaccinated and looked after by humans is a kind of wonderful thing. And the Japanese have an entire island called Cat Island. I'm sure you know that. It was in yep. one of the cat film festivals. It's a great film about the over-the-top passion that the Japanese have for cats, like way over the top. And looking after those cats in a community, educating people to understand, oh, they're beautiful. It's wonderful. There's a fairy taking us to look at them, but they shouldn't be reproducing. There's enough already. Too many is too many. Is that, do you think, hard for people to understand in, in communities where there's lots of cats and it all looks very scenic and charming, the jetty cats, let's say, in the marina, even in California, do you think they kind of miss the point that what looks good can become a nightmare for everybody? Yeah, it's a, it definitely is a challenge if you're in one of those communities and it's what, one degrees here in Vermont for me right now. So it's a little hard <laughs> me for me to, <laughs> to even envision that right now. But yeah, if you're in a, in a warmer climate community, I, you know, I work with the folks at Neighborhood Cats and they're in Maui trapping there a lot. And um, I mean, they have challenges like, you know, the overabundance of chickens. But, you know, it really is comes down to a lot about the kittens. I try to focus on the litters of kittens that are out there and the chances of them successfully growing into an adult cat um, as an outdoor uh, community cat, it's not easy. It's a challenge. Yes. There's a lot of predators. There's a lot of cars. There's a lot of lessons illness. learned, illness. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I stress a lot is that you know, we may have adult community cats out there. And once they hit about an age of one or so, you know, maybe they're successful, it's still not making their life any easier. But having those kittens certainly is a stress on the mom and the unneutered tomcats with the with the wounds and the injuries. I mean, yes. we're trying to reduce uh, that kind of an impact, the, the real suffering that goes on with uh, having litters of kittens, that process is what makes it an unhealthy population, and it becomes a healthy population when it's a fully sterilized one. Yes, extremely well said. And the feline fixed by five that, that Esther Meckler, I, I think, is, is the driving force behind is an important part of that story, that if a kitten reaches five months and isn't spayed or neutered yet, oops could be another litter of kittens on the way. Is that part of the messaging of the United Spay Alliance or is it kind of an adjunct information source? Um, I would say that it it's considered a program of the United Spay Alliance. So oh, good. Feline Fix by Five is an actual program and part of the organization. And we really are striving to advocate that clinics uh, private practice veterinarians, uh, public, you know, the nonprofit spay neuter clinics that they all really try and focus on encouraging all of their kittens to get spayed and neutered by the age of five months because, you know, cats can get pregnant, be, you know, at, be, around that time frame. So many veterinarians are um, still advocating six months some cases nine months, some cases even a year. Um, and we're really trying to work hard to spread our educational resources, our marketing resources to be able to promote Feline Fix by Five. February is Feline Fix by Five month. Um, and it's been endorsed by several national organizations. You can go to fixbyfive.org and there's marketing materials there, social media materials. So even if your organization would like to, or you as an individual would like to support the cause, you can certainly pull information from that website. And um, we would be just thrilled if you'd be willing to share your support. And the support can be in the form of passing along and sharing that information. Because if you have a local shelter or a local vet clinic or two that somehow has missed that message, that with cats, you really need to fix them by the time they turn five months old, totally different message than dogs, which for shelters, they have to spay and neuter even pediatric puppies. But we've discovered health-wise that, that for dogs waiting till a year old, if they're a well-maintained own dog that is not going to have the chance to run out and procreate, that for their personal health, physical personal health, it is better to wait to a year. But cats aren't dogs in any way. So it would be a shame if the vet clinics somehow got confused about the two species. It's like, Really? Nine months? Why would you want to 
a male cat in your home spraying till he was nine months old. You'll never get rid of that smell, right? Right. And and actually, that's really one of the most important parts of this campaign is the outreach, is the individual one-on-one outreach. A client brings it to a vet or one vet brings it to another vet yes. or it's just, it's a lot of this is very individual and grassroots. We just did a social media campaign of promoting Fix by Five. And it was really amazing to understand so many people still need to learn. They want to see the studies. They want more information. They need the background. I think there is still a lot of confusion between the cat and dog recommendations. And so, you know, we're here to try and provide some clarity um, for this. And at the end of the day, really, we are still dealing with the fact that a majority of the animals being euthanized in shelters are still cats due to space constraints. For the shelters that are faced with space constraint issues, the animals that are getting euthanized are, are cats. So we do have a population issue. We do have areas of the country where too many litters are being born. And that is really where we want fixed by five, feline fixed by five to come into play. It's sort of ironic that in Vermont, where you and I both live, there's a shortage of cats in shelters. I remember when I first moved here that Southampton Shelter, which was in the Hamptons where I lived for 13 years year-round, they had a, a, a lots of dogs. And they weren't even all pit bulls, which sadly is the case in many shelters. They just had more dogs than they would than they were able to quickly place. Um, and some cats too, but mostly these dogs. So they did a swap with Chittenden County Shelter at the time. They sent especially some large black dogs, the hardest ones to to um, to adopt. They, they got, took some of those from Vermont down to Southampton and swapped them some cats who quickly were adopted, nicely spayed and neutered, of course, before they were placed in their new homes. So it's, it is hard to imagine a hot island in Greece covered in cats mewing around when it's this cold here, or also a place where there's so so few cats, like Vermont, where people are like, oh, I really wish I could have a cat, but there aren't any to adopt. It is odd, the geographic differences, and therefore the difference in knowledge and understanding. It's a significant challenge, the conversations that happen in New England and in other parts of the country out in the Northwest, where we are the receivers of a lot of uh, animals, cats and dogs from the South and from other parts of the country where other parts of the country are having a hard time, um, you know, with just handling the population challenges there. It, it, I've actually done some overlays, you know, social, socioeconomic overlays around the country just to see where your veterinary accessibility is and mm-hmm. the population uh, areas that are challenging, you know, that have a lot of animals that need to be moved out are areas that have the lowest accessibility to vet care um, and the lowest accessibility to affordable vet care. So, you know, I've got my like top 10 list of communities that we need to really target in in the United States um, because maybe we can make an impact looking at that and and working off off of a list. It's huge challenge though. But, you know, the fact that you are drilling it down and making it not just a kind of generalized, hey, let's all spay and neuter. How about if there is no one to do the spay and neuter, what's the point of educating the people? You're just going to frustrate them and they'll be reproducing animals. I think something you mentioned early on about retired vets coming back to work a day or a day and a half a week. Wow, that is so great. So any of you out there, whether you're 60 or 70 or even 80, there's a lot of fabulous veterinarians who retired for age but are still vibrant and have that same desire to heal and help animals. If they could volunteer at their local shelter and do a half a day spay neuter even or a day a week, a day a month, it would make a huge difference because the shelters have enough space, many of them, where they could set it up to be a sterile situation to do spay neuter. It's not like doing open heart surgery. And if you had a a licensed vet or a vet who was licensed before and could revive their license, you could do a lot of spay neuters that those, those vets would be contributing enormously to the community and feeling still valued and needed. Retirement is not good for people's emotional health. So I think this will be great for the vets as well as for the animals and communities that don't have anyone even to help with, you know, lacerations, infections, even minor vet things that 
a few stitches could make the difference for life and death for an animal, right? Oh, I agree with you 100%. And, um, you know, never say it's impossible to do. Um, I was actually at a um, Humane Society in Brattleboro, Vermont, and they were doing high volume spay neuter clinics in like a large conference room that Fabulous. they had that they set it up as a what we call a MASH style clinic and Fabulous. a veterinarian drives up, they have the supplies there, and they provide spay neuter services to the cats in the community. And it's, it's just wonderful. It's just and and Five, six years ago, I don't think they would have thought they could do that. And they're now doing this today. And it's a wonderful service they're offering out to members of the community. It's terrific. We've run out of time, Stacey, but as usual, you're doing such great stuff. This is the month, guys, February, and the United Spay Alliance Conference is at the end of the month. With the podcast, I'll give you a link to where you can sign up for it and participate and look and watch and learn and do good deeds for kitties. Thank you so much, Stacey LeBaron. Thank you. This show is also brought to you by Merrick Pet Care, which began as a family-run company in Texas 30 years ago, where they are still making natural pet food. They also provide the nutrition to pet shelters in Chicago and Texas, and the dogs of veterans with the national nonprofit Canines for Warriors. I am so pleased to have been able to grab the brilliant Dr. Catherine Raven from the mountaintops where she where she breathes in the very thin air of the national parks and of nature to have her come back after the interview we've already done about Fox and I, an uncommon friendship, a book that I have not stopped recommending to people as a very different way of looking at the world. And to invite Kathy back to talk about sort of the beginning of 2022, the different way that we all need to adjust our thinking about humans and animals, how we see them, how we name them, how we treat them, uh, how we misinterpret them, and in particular in regards to this cat psychopathy study, which I think is a lemonade situation, Kathy, where we take the lemon of a fairly obnoxious, just to pick a lay term, uh, research study that that has a, a wonderful checklist for people of all the things that are natural to cats and how that might mean your cat's a psychopath. Let's talk about the way that people, sadly, lay people and professionals want to twist the world around to see it from their perspective. You, to me, are one of the great thinkers because you saw a fox from the inside out. You became the fox. You were befriending the fox on his terms. So welcome back to the show. Congratulations also. You've been long listed for the Pen America Science Literature Award, one of the great kudos that any scientist or writer or thinker can get. And I hope that you're on the short list and the winner. But in any case, you deserve to be to get lots of accolades for the work you're doing. It's unique and really quite extraordinary. Thank you so much. And I have to add that that Pen America Award is uh, also named for E.O. Wilson, Ooh. one of the heroes. I mean, my biggest hero, the, really the reason why I went into biology. Yes. I, I try to read every word he's written. And just days after the announcement was made that I was on the long list, E.O. Wilson died. I was so uh, just saddened and shocked and it a reminder that every single person uh, ev- everybody that's important to us dies too soon it doesn't matter if they're 120 it's, right. it's too soon i wasn't ready to lose eo wilson i only hope that his death brings more people to his writing yes I, that would be I terrific would up his well, name we're going to keep you alive for a very long time so we don't need anything gloomy news to bring anyone to your writing let's talk <laughs> about you're an academic you're you're a, a member of mensa which i didn't know what it meant until until I started to read your book and then I read about you and I thought, Mensa, that's kind of like Phi Beta Kappa. No, folks, it's not. I tried to read, never mind that I tried to take the Mensa test online, like a little a little taste of it. <laughs> I couldn't understand one question. I don't mean I didn't have the answer. I mean, literally couldn't understand the question. So Kathy, you're not only someone who clearly has brains too big for your britches, but literally, but you also have this extraordinary empathy and compassion for not just the animal world, but the natural world, whether it's weeds and seeds and bugs and certainly fox. What is your feeling 
from the like takes three steps back about people seeking PhDs of which you already have one and some other degrees or seeking a second PhD or the scaling up the ladder of academia by coming up with ideas that are inappropriate to an animal species in order to make their own mark on the world. I mean, that's how I view the situation. You have students who you are guiding into the world of biology. Can you talk a little bit about others in the ivory towers and whether there's a, a real abuse of an understanding of who animals are and what what they should mean to us? Well, I won't say that there's abuse, but as let's take a look at that psychopathy study. Uh, everybody knows that cats are sexy and stories about cats can become viral. Mm -hmm. So I can understand the temptation, but to try to talk about cats as being psychopaths, you have to keep in mind that psychopathy is really important. It's such an important, and, and biologists don't study human uh, behavior. So we're not psychologists or psychiatrists. We don't study human nature. We study humans, though, as animals, but right. we study the entire animal kingdom, mm -hmm. which is something very important. But we should never, uh, so, so psychopathy is very, very important. It's serious and it's a matter of life or death. Mm -hmm. And so we shouldn't try to diminish its importance by making it silly well and said. trying to make it sexy mm -hmm. by attaching the sea lions to domestic cats because everybody likes looking at pictures of cats. If you have ever had to live with or know anybody that's had to live with it, somebody who's a psychopath, it's a serious problem and there's it's innate, meaning inborn, meaning mm -hmm. genetic, meaning you can't do anything about it. And most psychopaths don't seek help. They are narcissistic. They have superficial charm, poor judgment, no remorse, no shame, impulsive, psych pathological liars. The shooter in Las Vegas, I think all of us remember that horrific sure. situation in Vegas. Nobody could figure out to this day why he did that. It's believed, though, that he was a psychopath, his father was diagnosed with psychopathy. We know that. The gentleman, or I, I call him a gentleman, the man who shot everybody up in Las Vegas wasn't diagnosed. But most psychopaths don't seek help. They like being psychopaths. And perhaps that is the answer for why he did what he did. We don't know because he's dead. We can't analyze him. But we do know that his father was a psychopath. We do know that uh, we have no other answer for what he did. So this is a really serious issue, and it needs to be taken seriously. And I want to um, bring up something that maybe doesn't have to do with foxes, but has to do with me as a teacher. And that is something that's very similar. I think we all know what Nazis are. And we tend in our society to joke about the word Nazi. And I know that my students will use the word book Nazi to talk about a librarian who charges right. them mm -hmm. for their own books. And every time I hear my students, they do it every semester about someone, use the word Nazi, I politely correct them and let them know that a Nazi is a very serious thing that everybody should study, not in biology, but in their history classes and their political science classes. And to call a librarian a book Nazi is to diminish the importance and the seriousness of what it what it means to be a Nazi. Well said. So, so, so to shift it, since, since we are talking about animals and the way that we perceive them, misperceive them and mislabel them and misjudge them, that's a really good explanation of that. My, to my mind, these researchers who claim in the interview that I did with the lead researcher, oh, gosh, the media just got it wrong. Apparently, you're in the Twitter world. You're in the modern world much more than I am. They were crowing on Twitter about all the attention that the, to me, obnoxious title of their study got, cats and yes. psychopathy, putting two words together, which have no business being together. So going to the idea of psychopathic humans, which is the only place that word should be used. There are no such things as psychopathic horses or cats Correct. or snakes. Doesn't exist. Wrong use, like really ignorant use of a word. It's a human exactly. psychological department where they did this research. 
There are so many human psychopaths who, as you've just said, uh, as a wonderful setup for what I believe, who are not only misunderstood and and misdiagnosed, they aren't even known about. Why don't they spend their time and money doing that? Because it's not sexy. It's not sexy in, as, a, as a headline or maybe to get grant money. I think it's really important for dogs as well that we stop using, and you are very much involved with wildlife, which we can discuss in a moment, that we stop using human words to describe dog behavior. Now, that's something I'm sure you have some thoughts about too. Dogs, there's a lot of words, dominance and and alpha. These are made up human ideas, you know, from the workplace. It has nothing to do with how dogs are dogs. And the more we misunderstand them, the more we give them a lousy life because we're we're putting them in boxes and putting words to them that don't belong with them. Did people, when you were writing Fox and I, or after you had written it, it came out into the world, were there ethologists or other scientists or biologists or whomever who said, oh, that fox couldn't have been her friend. Foxes can't be people's friends. Did you get any negative pushback about doing something extraordinary with an animal, forming a long-distance relationship, so to speak? Certainly before the book came out, certainly there there is still a feeling that um, humans and animals are more separate. And certainly not among scientists, but among most people in our society, we still want to believe that humans and animals are much further separated mm-hmm. than we really are. Mm-hmm. Um, Fox, foxes are a really interesting example. And we talked about cat, you talked about cats and dogs. So I want to take this opportunity to remind people the big difference between cats and dogs. Uh, Humans have a very, perhaps among all of the mammals, the most complex social structure among all mammals. I think any scientist will agree with that. And after humans come all of the non-human primates, but Mm -hmm. the next category of complex social systems are going to be carnivores. That's absolutely true. So we have things like lions and and, uh, jaguars and, and such, but dogs and cats are two different families That's so right. remember that we have taxonomic categories and it, so we have humans then we have non-human primates and then we have the carnivores and among the carnivores cats and dogs are not are very very different they're in two completely different families so a fox is very different than a cat Cats tend, in general, cats are not social animals. Another reason why I have no idea why you would even think about talking about psychopathy in a cat. (laughs) Because it's a social, it it deals with how they relate to their society. And cats don't have much of a society. Dogs do, many more species that are dogs, that are in the dog family, live in mated pairs and live or live in packs, and a few are solitary, but almost all members of the cat family are solitary. So foxes tend not to be solitary. They're like, because they're in the dog family, not right. in, the, in the cat family. That's a very important distinction. And it, that's why my book is about fox and not a cat. I don't think that I would have been able to have this relationship with a cat. Not that there's something wrong with cats, but cats tend to be solitary animals. So they're not chasing down friendships for right. a fox. Right. It's the thing. Foxes are social animals and very social animals. So that's a very important thing to remember about foxes. And I think that um, we need to think about natural selection. And I hope that when people finish my book, I know it's not it's not encyclopedic. It's not a scientific tome. It's meant to be entertaining, but I also mean it to be scientific and for people to learn about science without picking up a really boring science textbook. And what I want mostly people to understand about science is natural selection. That's the, the basis of all biology. There There is no biology without evolution and there's no evolution without natural selection and cats domestic cats when i say cats i'm not talking about the family i mean domestic cats they are not the product of natural selection that's a very important distinction between a cat and fox 
And it's another reason why, of course, cats can't possibly exhibit psychopathy or any other types of behavior that that are genetic. Cats are not the product of natural selection. Natural selection means that traits that are beneficial are chosen, selected, chosen Mm -hmm. by nature. And by nature, we mean the survival world, the physical world, and the natural world, right? Yeah. Not by humans. So Charles Darwin, I have a crush on Charles Darwin, so I read everything that he's written. <laughs> <laughs> I love Charles uh, I just Darwin. want to warn you, we have two minutes left, and I could listen to you all night okay. long. I want okay. you to wrap up this thought because I want... I want people to go away with with an idea. I want besides I want them to buy the book Fox and I an Uncommon Friendship because I think it extends our appreciation and respect for other species. I want them to come away with this idea that you have a minute to wrap up about Charles Darwin who you have a crush on. This is why you need to read the book. We are more we are very much like other animals. We are more like other animals than you once believed, than you have been trained to believe. And when you spend time with your pets, they become more like you. When you, when I spent time with Fox, I became more like him. Read the book to understand that you are very much like other animals, that you're a member of the animal kingdom, and that should get you in touch with not your animal nature, but your human nature, yes. which is not animal nature. I want people to get in touch with their human nature. Pull aside the curtain of culture. Pull it aside, the religion, the culture, the politics, the nationalism, and get in touch with your human nature. That's what it means to become friends with a wild animal, to that understand is, your that is that beautifully said. And the domestic animals in your life are not to be judged by your yardstick. And yes, we're all animals, but the humans, as you said earlier, are the most complex and the most complicated and probably the most messed up, which is obviously not a technical or scientific term. I just want people to understand that you cannot take the human yardstick to measure everything else. We are no better. We are very different, but no better. Don't use our yardstick and apply it to other species. Try to let the species come to you and teach you something, which Catherine Raven's book does. And it really will give you a much deeper appreciation. And I hope a little indignation about those who would misuse language Mm -hmm. and abuse animals verbally by using bad language about them. Catherine Raven, thank you for being here. Thank you for writing Fox and I, An Uncommon Friendship. You are an uncommon woman. Thank you for being here. Oh, you're welcome. Very welcome. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the guests as much as I did. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches, and we will talk again next week. Bye for now.